whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to the present present came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him? and his house, and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. There came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and shook down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he, is yet, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, and took them, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another servant, and, and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right. Uh, well, good morning, uh, everyone. Um, it's good to see you all uh, virtually and also to see um, just the live activity uh, via our YouTube live website and our chat. You know, we've got several screens up here so we can see all that, that activity. Uh, Max, save me a bagel, all right? Um, but, you know, we're streaming from my house and, man, it's been a crazy week, you know, for Harry, me, and Jerome and Paula. We've just been sort of trying to figure all this out uh, by the grace of God. You know, here we are and we are... We are getting out the gospel to you guys. Um, this is our second live stream service. And um, yeah, Jen and I have been cooped up uh, at home like the rest of you. And you know, I was watching uh, Lone Survivor the other day. And it just reminded me the importance of communication. 
You know, that whole mission, uh, you know, sort of went sideways once they lost communication. Without communication, the, the special ops team was stranded without any kind of backup, without any kind of guidance, without any kind of help. And so this past week, Harry and I, we've just been uh, really just praying and thinking through how we can still communicate with one another, how we can share the gospel with you guys. And so this week, we've got some ideas to have a weekly prayer meeting, uh, you know, some men's and women's virtual fellowships. And Risen, uh, thank you, all of you, for reaching out and offering your help during these trying times. And, you know, we love you guys. We miss you guys. Um, but, you know, like the Apostle Paul told the Colossian church when they were apart, he said that they were still together, united by and in the Holy Spirit. And so, friends, this really is a biblical reality. Though we are far apart, we are still together in spirit. You know, uh, before the pandemic, we were just starting a series through Genesis. And uh, Harry and I decided to briefly just sort of suspend that series and switch gears and to address more directly what's happening with us right now and what's happening in the world. You know, because of the coronavirus, it's been five days of shelter in place. And the governor of California believes that it's unlikely that schools will open before summer break. And so we're all sort of waiting and seeing. Every day gives us new news. Friends, right now is a time of uncertainty, isn't it? D.A. Carson says in his book, How Long, O Lord, when no explanation at all is given in times of uncertainty, when uncertainty is perceived as simply inescapable, senseless, and a complete waste, a culture develops, a culture of hopelessness, powerlessness, and cynicism that is personally and socially destructive. Friends, one of the ways we as a people serve each other during times of uncertainty is by helping one another face these times of uncertainty. And so at Risen, you know, we're committed to talking about things, making sense of things, praying for each other, examining things under the microscope. You know, we're not okay with pet answers. Um, hand sanitizer is great and it's useful, but that is not the answer to life's problems and solutions. You know, we lean into uncertainty. We want to be equipped holistically for the battles of living in this world. So friends, with that being said, we're going to start a sermon series, a brief sermon series titled uh, Facing Our Fears in Times of Uncertainty. And so what we'll be doing for the next several weeks is examining some people in Scripture who faced their worst fears in their time of uncertainty. Today we're taking a look at Job because there is no book in the Bible or piece of literature in all of history that addresses the great why question of suffering. That questions the great why question of suffering with the intellectual and philosophical integrity and the emotional and existential realism and profoundness than the book of Job. So today we're just going to take a look at four things. We're going to first think deeper than pat answers. Secondly, we're going to take a look at the sovereignty of God. Then we'll take a look at the will of God. And then lastly, we'll take a look at the assurance of God. So first, let's think deeper than pat answers. 
You know, there are usually two ways uh, we respond, human beings respond to evil and suffering. One is hopelessness, and the other is cynicism, right? Uh, hopelessness responds by asking God, what are you doing? Right? What, why are you doing this? What did I do to deserve this? You know, I give up. I give up on you. I give up on this world. There's no meaning in life. There's no grand purpose. Uh, that's how many of us respond, with hopelessness. Cynicism responds by saying, of course there's no God. This proves it. If there is a God, he's incompetent or he's indifferent. He's powerless or he's loveless. Life is random. Life is brutal. Life is about survival. Might makes right. Every man and every woman ought to live for themselves. That's how cynicism responds. But friends, these are, these are pat answers. And what I mean by that is this. A pat answer is an overly simplistic answer that fails to fully or adequately explain or respond to something. For example, on one hand, even though we suffer and experience evil, there is still tremendous meaning in life to do good. And so many things worth living for and fighting for and so many things God has blessed us with, you, can't, you can count them on your you know, hand, uh, both hands immediately right away. And yes, life can be brutal sometimes but it does not mean that we simply look out for our own interests. We know that might doesn't make right. That's not what a healthy individual or a healthy family or society looks like. And that's definitely not the kind of reality we've experienced from others. We've all been recipients of tremendous acts of kindness and grace and love. And so friends, when we uh, encounter uncertainty or pain and suffering, we need to avoid answers. We need to think deeper because they're quick and simple, but they don't sufficiently explain reality. Uh, the Atlantic uh, recently published an article on Francis Collins, who is the director of the National Institute of Health. He's deeply involved in containing the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and then towards the end of the article, Collins moves away from the coronavirus and he, and he talks about his faith as a uh, first a scientist and then as a doctor. You know, Collins was an atheist, and in the article he describes how as an atheist he would challenge anybody who wanted to bring God into the conversation. And he says that basically he would have asserted that, you know, um, they were basically stuck in some past era of supernaturalism that is no longer necessary because science has eliminated the need for God, for biblical truth. But then as a doctor, as he kept practicing more and more, Collins encountered the limitations of science to address the brokenness of the world. And he also encountered many individuals who are dying and yet so deeply committed to their Christian faith and also totally dedicated to helping others in their own pain and suffering. He says that as he was helping people who were dying, he was constantly asked by them, Doctor, how can I pray for you? Doctor, how are you doing? And he was so puzzled and unsettled by this, um, how they approached something that, that he was personally terrified about that the end of their lives, they had peace and this assurance and even a sense of joy beyond health and security and even beyond family and, and wealth, that this made him realize that he had never really gone beyond a superficial consideration of God and, and the meaning of life and the purpose of life. 
So after connecting with the church and, and doing some more studying and, and many, many personal and meaningful conversations, Collins became a Christian. And so friends, you know, I would fail you as a pastor. I would fail you as a brother. I, was, I would fail you as a friend if I didn't challenge you to think deeper that pet answers to life. If I didn't challenge you to think deeper than pet answers to purpose and God. You know, we'd be failing each other. And Job starts right out to tell us that these two approaches, hopelessness and cynicism, are pet answers to life. And, and they're not only wrong, but they're logically and emotionally and spiritually and socially and personally dead ends. So friends, avoid them. Think deeper. And actually, the book of Job helps us. And it, and, and it helps us to think deeper through this, honestly, this fascinating dialogue between God and Satan, right? In Job 1, we're introduced to Satan, which is simply the Hebrew word for enemy. And the word devil is also uh, just the Greek translation of that Hebrew word Satan. So devil and Satan mean the same thing. But, but where, did, where did Satan come from? In uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 8, and I have it here on the screen, uh, this is what it tells us. That ancient enemy who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, were thrown down with him. So before the creation of mankind, when God created the angels, one of them turned away and led as many as he could to do the same. Now maybe you know, you're listening or you're watching and, and you listen to that and, and you think, that, that sounds pretty ludicrous. That sounds like something out of a movie and you disagree with this, which, you know, which begs the question, where did these movies get it from? Well, they got it from the Bible. And if you're not sure if you agree with this, then you've got to have a different explanation and not a pan answer, but a different explanation for the evil and suffering in this world. If you say it's a part of life, it's a part of evolution, that's a pat answer because when you're faced with evil and suffering, you don't just sit there. No one just, we don't, we don't really just sit there and say that's evolution. You know, when we experience evil and suffering ourselves, we don't say that's just, that's just how it's supposed to be. No, we don't, we don't really believe that. We all know that there's something terribly wrong when we experience evil and suffering. We try to stop it. It's not how it's supposed to be. We try to find the rhyme and reason in it. We're searching for more than pat answers. And so, friends, the Bible is really calling us to think deeper than pet answers, to consider a holistic worldview of life and death, of purpose and meaning, of ethics and justice and suffering and evil. And this brings us to our second point, the sovereignty of God. Now, you know, God could have simply destroyed Satan when Satan turned on him, couldn't he? Uh, God could have just said, Satan, what are you doing? And he could have just you know, cast him out, he could have judged him, he could have con condemned him, he could have extinguished him. But he doesn't. God doesn't. Why? Why doesn't God do that before Satan could create even more chaos and harm? Or put it another way, if, if a good and powerful God exists, why would he allow any kind of seemingly pointless evil in this world? You know, actually, if you read the book of Genesis, if you go even before Job, Satan makes his first appearance in the gardens in Eden with Adam and Eve. And Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he 
influences them to turn from God, and he gets Adam and Eve to doubt God's wisdom and love for them. Right then and there, right, God could have stormed out of the heavens and put Satan out of our misery, but he doesn't. He allows Adam and Eve to be tested. And in the same way in Job 1, Satan comes to God and he says, God, oh, you think Job is, is so great? You know, um, it's, it's really, you, you think he loves you that much? You think, you think he serves you unconditionally? No, it's because his life is good. You know, he doesn't love you. He loves the things he's getting from you. He loves the fact that, that you've given him health and prosperity and status. You know, God, he doesn't love you for yourself. Take those things away from him and he'll be out of there. You'll see he's no good. And then God says, okay, go ahead. But you can't take his life. And Satan goes out. And he does all these bad things to Job. What's happening here? The book of Job gives us the most transparent behind-the-scenes look at evil and suffering in the Bible. You see, on the one hand, right, we notice that, that it's Satan's idea that all these bad things should happen to Job. It's not God who's coming up with this idea. Even the natural disasters, Satan is the one who goes and does it. God doesn't actively, directly generate the suffering, Satan does. You know, this is a way of getting across, friends, a very important fact, and that is this. When God made the world, he didn't make disease in it. He didn't make natural disaster. That's not the world that God made. God hates evil. He's against it, and he didn't create a world in which evil existed. He didn't create a world in which windstorms would come and knock over homes and kill everybody in them. It wasn't a place of death. Disease and disaster and death are not the things that God made. They're in this world, but God didn't directly make them. They're the brokenness that was unleashed when Satan was able to tempt Adam and Eve to turn away from God. When they rebelled against God, the fabric of this entire world began to unravel. And friends, we see this all the time. You know, just as the future generations will experience the world we leave them, we now experience the moral and the spiritual and the emotional and the physical world Adam and Eve left us. So on the one hand, we see God is not desiring or deliberately creating the suffering that goes into Job's life. Satan is initiating it. On the other hand, God is in absolute control. He sets all the limits, all the boundaries. He says, okay, but then he says, you can do this, but you can't do that. God is in absolute control. It's asymmetrical. We don't have Satan and God as two equal opposite forces of uh, fighting against each other. No, it's completely unbalanced. God has all the power and he allows suffering. He limits it. But we could, we, could, we could go deeper here a little bit. Why would God even allow this? Right? Why, why would God even allow this kind of arrangement? And this brings us to the third point in our sermon, the will of God. You know, first, um, on a very high level, you know, honestly, we don't know why God would do this, why God would allow this, why in his 
grand scheme and his grand picture of things that this was the arrangement of life that he was okay with. Because to expect um, at a very high level, friends, that we can fully understand why God does things, right? It, it assumes that God is really no different than us, that he operates on our level and everything he does should make sense to us. But this is, you know, you know this, is, this is actually kind of the, the approach that kids have with their parents, isn't it? They think they should know everything and why the parents are doing things for them. They think they should know why they can't have this for dinner or why they need to do this, you know, uh, why do they need to do this chore or that chore, why they need to brush their teeth. But the difference between God and us is far more divergent than a parent with their children. You know, it's not quantitative. For example, a child will understand their parents one day through time and experience. That's a quantitative difference. But in any culture throughout history, whether it's by atheists or agnostics or Christians, God has always been conceived as qualitatively different. He's been conceived as a supreme being, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, transcendently different and eternal. Author Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, The King's Cross. He writes this, and I have it um, on the screen too. He says, If you have a problem with believing in a God that you can't understand, then your God is so limited in power and knowledge that he operates within your understanding. Or he is so big and so powerful that he does things you wouldn't be able to understand. You can't have it both ways. Do you want a God so normal and so small and so understanding that whatever he does you understand fully? Or do you want a God so big and so powerful and so transcendent that there are things about him and what he does that you wouldn't be able to understand fully? Which God do you want? Friends, I think, I think Tim Keller nails it there. You see, just because we can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen, it doesn't mean that there can't be one. That's sort of the high level of why God would allow this, the will of God. But on a lower level, God does reveal to us why he allows pain and suffering. Right In Job 1, actually, Satan puts his finger just smack on one of the big problems with the whole human race. For example, friends, do you ever have a friend who only seems to call you when they need something? You know, um, they're never really calling you to talk or to, to catch up over a cup of coffee. They're not really asking how they can help you or how they can pray for you. It's, it's you always sort of helping them, praying for them. Right? You're, you're not the end goal. You're, you're a means to what they want. Now, before we get all self-righteous, right, we all can get like this. And, and Satan is smiling. He, he's looking at us and he's saying, y'all are in it for yourself. You're not loving each other. You're not loving the person for who they are. You're loving yourself and you're trying to get things from people. You don't love people for who they are in themselves. You love what they can do for you. So, so what's the principle here? The principle is if you want to be a real human being, not a manipulator, if you want to be a person of principle, if you want to be a person of integrity, a loving person, Friends, we have to learn how to love God for who He is in Himself alone. And we have to learn how to love people for who they are in themselves. 
guess what, friends? The only way uh, we're ever going to learn how to love God for who he is in himself alone is through suffering. The only way to be sure that you're coming to God for him alone, the only way to be sure you're loving for God, loving God for himself alone, rather than what you're getting out of it, you have to be in a condition where loving God, coming to God, serving God, gets you nothing. You're getting nothing out of it at all. See, if the uttermost foundations of your heart and happiness are your things, if you build your life on things, suffering will inevitably pull you away from your happiness. Suffering will inevitably pull you away from your joy. And you're just going to get madder and madder and sadder and sadder and worse and worse. But if you build your life on God and his absolute perfection, his absolute affection for you, his absolute concern for you, his, his loyalty to you, his absolute control and power, if that's what you build your life on, then when suffering happens in this world, when it happens to you, it'll drive you to God. It'll drive you deeper into your source of joy, which is God. You know, as things reveal to be temporary and fleeting and unfulfilling and breaking down, you get driven towards the permanent and the constant and the eternal and the life-giving person and character of who God is and how he is repurposing you and where he's taking you. Now you're getting nothing from God but himself, which is the greatest benefit, which can never be taken away. In fact, now, now, now you're the one giving because God's love is a paid-forward kind of love. He's using you to love others. He's using you to serve others. He's using you to pray for others, to give to others. So that's the first thing we learn. We learn that on a lower level, pain and suffering comes into our lives one, to test us and to drive us to the one thing that cannot be taken away from us. But secondly, the other thing we learn here is that Job never finds out why God is doing this, right? It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of mysterious here, right? We get sort of this heavenly picture here, but Job never gets to see it, that all of a sudden he's just hearing bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news. Throughout the entire book, Job never hears this. He has no idea why he's suffering to be tested, to be refined. In fact, when you get to the end of the book, when God shows up and speaks to Job, he doesn't even bring it up. He says, hey man, you know, I just want you to know, you know, um, I knew that this was all going to happen and, you know, I brought, and, and you know, I, I, I was going to take care of you and, you know, this was all to test you. No, God doesn't even say that. Right? God doesn't say, you know, Job, you know, uh, after all of this, do you realize that you're going to be remembered for all of history, that you're going to be a model and example, and you're going to be an encouragement? People millions and years from now will remember who you are because of what happened. He never even says that. All God does, he, first of all, Job is sort of complaining to God, and God shows up in a thunderstorm. And he says, 
Who darkens my wisdom through words without knowledge? Who do you think you are, Job? I'm God. I know what I'm doing. And then what does Job say? Man, he, he, has, he really has not, not much to go off of. And, and, and Harry read this. He says, I came naked. Right? Naked just means to be absolutely vulnerable, absolutely helpless, absolutely poor, nothing. And he says, I'm leaving naked. He says, essentially, everything I have was on loan from God. God gave it to me. They're gifts of grace. If God wants to take them away, he brought them to me to start with, so he has the right to do that. That's what Job says. What an answer. And it's not a pet answer. It's critically thought out through 40 chapters. It's holistic. It captures both good and suffering, God and free will. It's realistic. It's been personally experienced and tested by Job. His response is absolutely amazing. That's the reason Job became Job. That's the reason why we're talking about him right now. That's the reason why everyone has heard of Job. That's the reason why Job will be remembered for eternity. Now this brings us to our last point, the assurance of God. You know, throughout the book of Job, uh, God calls Job his servant. And we see this in how Job served as a just judge for his people and his city. That was actually his job in the city of Uz. And in Job chapter 29, uh, verses 14 to 17, describes how, God, uh, how Job served his people and his city. And I have it here just on the screen to my right. This is what it reads. Job said, I put on righteousness as my clothes and justice like a robe. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out for justice to the breast. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. I smiled on them when they had no confidence like one who comforts mourners. See, Job was was not just a servant to his comrades. Actually, he was their redeemer. You see, in the Old Testament, the word redeemer was a legal term, and it was someone who was legally bound to take care of his brother's widow or adopt his brother's children in the event of his death so that, so that his family wouldn't be sold into slavery. And we see here that Job did this to the best of his ability for those who became legally destitute. Man, it's this, I love this passage here. He's saying, he was a father to the orphan, and he searched out for justice of the oppressed, right? And, and when there were oppressors who were going to swallow their victims, Job, as a judge, made them drop them from their teeth. But he was also personal and relational. He comforted them when they mourned. But here's Job. He's lost all his assets, his family, his health. In Job nine, and in Job 19, if you take a look at it, man, he's falling apart. You know, he's telling God, God, I am I'm broken. Where is, where is my redeemer? Who's, who's going to protect me? Who's going to break the fangs of my oppressor? and free me from 
his jaws. Who is going to comfort me? Who is going to have my back? And in this lament, we see then from Job an answer, and it's, it's a beam of light. In Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, Job says this. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that that last day he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. What is he saying? He's, he's, he's talking about a resurrection. He's like, after my body decays in the ground, I will still, in my flesh, I'll be resurrected. I will see God, whom I shall see with, for myself, and with my own eyes shall behold. That's what Job says in his time of uh, not just uncertainty, but devastation in the time of his greatest fear. He was living his worst nightmare. You see, throughout the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel were always looking to the day that God would send this Redeemer, the servant of servants to right all the wrongs of the world, to stop all the evil, all the diseases, all the disasters. You see, the, the nation of Israel, they were not okay with pat answers. They were wrestling with all of life holistically. And God had spoken to them through the prophets of his love for them and his deliverance. And we know on this side of history that 2,000 years ago, this became a reality in the servant redeemer, Jesus Christ. Is he like Job? Jesus is called a servant. Like Job, Jesus was tested. Like Job, Jesus suffered unjustly. Like Job, Jesus didn't deserve it. But here's the one difference. Unlike Job, Jesus chose this for himself. And Jesus Christ is the only person who ever served God truly for nothing. Jesus didn't get anything out of it for himself by serving God. You know, Jesus actually had all the glory he already had the angels worshiping. He had the power of the crown, but he gives it all up. You know, in a time where everyone is practicing social distancing because we don't want to infect one another, Jesus had everything to lose, but he never distanced himself from his people. He never would. He never could. Why? Why would he do this? Because Jesus is the ultimate servant redeemer. He's the ultimate doctor. And he did it for us by getting close to us. The son of God became a mortal man. He suffered and he was betrayed. He was abandoned. He became poor. He died. He lost it all. Simply because we were more important to him. Saving one more person, reaching one more town, saving one more soul was more important than his own life. Friends, that's Jesus. This is amazing, isn't it? Jesus loved us for who we are in ourselves and not anything we can give him. And he pursued us no matter the cost. On the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, took the blow for all the sins of the world and, and its end game of death 
He went the entire way so that we can have His grace and His love and His hope and eternal life. And even now, friends, Jesus is not distancing Himself from you. He's not spiritually or emotionally or personally distancing Himself from you. He forgives you. He loves you. He's with you. He's for you. He's never going to ever let you go. Friends, in these times of uncertainty, man, we, we, we need to think deeper than pet answers. And I want to encourage you. Um, you know, Harry and I, you know, we, we listen, we, we're listening, we're, we're talking with you, we're emailing with you, we're texting with you. We know that you are facing uncertainty, but we want to encourage you to face Jesus and let this uncertainty drive you to the only certainty in life and death. Not the stock market, not our careers, not the fragility of life. Lean into Jesus and, and trust Him and, and look at His love for you. And then go love Him alone for who He is and serve Him. And then you'll find yourself not anxious or worried or afraid, but with the faith and love, strength, hope, and words of Job. Naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. You know, um, obviously we see the stock market just plummeting and some of us are just, you know, crushed. Um, some of us are afraid of our health and, and man, we, we, we don't want to be around anyone, but at the same time we're going crazy. We're afraid of our maybe parents, maybe afraid of those who have weaker immune systems. Maybe we're afraid of losing our job. Some of us are afraid of how, how you're going to provide for us. These are the real problems of this real world. And we see here that all of this, <laughs> all of this was orchestrated in the spiritual realm between you and Satan, huh? <laughs> oh, man. Blows my mind. And you've allowed it but you're given Satan limits because you are still in absolute control. And you are desiring for us to see the futility and the fragility of this world, of the treasures that moth and rust can destroy, of our bodies that will return to dust from which it came. You want us to and our faith to be refined, to pass these tests. Every single challenge we face is the garden. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But so many times we fail it, Lord, and we doubt you, and we try to chase what you call is the wind, something that is is an illusion that is a striving after the wind.
And we are so thankful for Job. Uh, apparently you did think um, he was a bad man. And man, I, I just can't believe he, he did what he did. And I'm so thankful that when everyone had left him, that you didn't. And that we can have hope now that if Job could do what he did, then we can face our greatest fears and, and dare I say, even live our worst nightmares and worship you and bless your name. So Father, would you be with all of us? Lord, I truly believe you are giving us wisdom. You have given the government wisdom to put a shelter in place. But have you, but have we faith? This I do wonder. Because if we truly do believe that every soul is important and the gospel is the hope of the world, then surely, Lord, there is a greater purpose to this pandemic. And there should be a greater sense of maybe urgency of us, not of our health, but of those who don't know you. And so let us pray for that too. We pray that, Lord, you would give the doctors and our health system more protective gear, more resources, more equipment. Lord, would you provide the means for that? Would you allow us to rally as a people to help uh, each other face times of uncertainty? That's what a healthy culture does. And while we pray for that, Lord, would you allow us to pray for salvation? If today is the day for salvation, help us to live like it is. Help us to pray for salvation. Help us to share the gospel somehow, in some way, and help those who are facing this time to come to faith, to come to salvation, to deal with this time of uncertainty with more than pet answers, but with, Lord, the holistic worldview that you present for us. So we just want to give you praise because you are victorious. And we know that our Redeemer lives. And on that last day, we shall see him, though our flesh waste away, we will see him with new flesh. And with new eyes, we shall behold our Redeemer. We thank you and praise you.